way, so full of sin in ourselves, unworthy to lose his shoes, to take it upon ourselves to sit in judgment upon the sweet psalmist of Israel. Oh, that we may be enabled to approach it with true humility. There is a tendency in all of us to look in disfavor and judgment on others whose sinful actions we find particularly abhorrent. The gossiper looks down upon the adulterer. The adulterer looks down upon the drug trafficker and the drug addict. The drug addict looks down upon the murderer. And God looks down with disfavor and wrath on all sin. That's the all-important point that we frequently miss. God condemns all sin. Therefore, I strongly advise that we approach our subject tonight with objectivity and humility of soul, as Pink suggested. And frankly, with fear and trembling. We need to come to grips with something before we start in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that is that there's only been one person that's ever lived. One person alone that's ever walked this earth who had no sin in him whatsoever. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't you. It was Jesus Christ. And I want us to pause and let that sink in before we go any further. It wasn't me and it wasn't you. It was Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's been sinless. As we sit here, we may say, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as her. I've never been as bad as him. You've missed the whole point. Stop and reset. Pause and think. We have all committed sin. There's only been one person that's ever lived, that's ever walked this earth, that has no sin whatsoever, and that was Jesus. That's the grid through which we need to view this passage. We're all equally guilty before God before we accepted His gracious offer of a pardon by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. All sin is offensive to God. Jesus Christ suffered for the sin of murder, and He suffered for the sin of gossip. It's true that some sin carries with it greater consequences than other sins. God just made this abundantly clear in the Mosaic Law. Adultery, murder, homosexuality, for example, were punishable by death. There are some sins that so damage a culture that God commanded that they be dealt with very severely. But one of the biggest mistakes that I observe personally, if I may, as a pastor, and it grieves me so to observe it, is when people take it upon themselves to verbally assassinate the character of others based upon some sin, either real or imagined, while at the same time paying no attention whatsoever to their own fault. Unless you think I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to everybody, me included, all of us have been guilty of this. And it's truly unlovely. And no church is immune to this unloveliness, including this one. It happens everywhere. David was a great man, but not a perfect one. He was a king against which all other kings in Israel were judged. We've seen something of his kindness recently, his courage, his skill in administration, and his literary genius. 
But one of the most important and interesting things about the Bible is the way that it doesn't play favorites when it comes to the evaluation of God's servants. Again, there's only one perfect person. He alone is glorified in Scripture. So while we have praised David for knocking down that giant and for doing the things he should have done, for showing kindness to Mephibosheth, the Bible evaluates him objectively. There's nothing that I've said so far today I hope that would, that would even be remotely taken as an excuse to sin. God never excuses sin, any kind of sin. That's not the point. The point of 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that we should all be careful when it comes to the idea of consistency in the spiritual life. We need consistency in our lives across the board, not just in certain areas, not in compartmentalized areas, across the board. So it's up to each of us to examine our own lives and make sure that we've submitted every aspect of our lives to Him. Many of us will submit everything to do with our family to Him. But come Monday morning when I get into the office, dog eat dog, it's a different world there, you just don't understand. Or we may submit the family and the office, but get us out on the golf course, and all bets are off out there. Every aspect of our life needs to be submitted. This is going to be one of David's big mistakes. We've hinted about it for months, and now it's going to come to pass. This is David's problem, a lack of consistency across the board. Tremendously great in some areas. Better than we'd ever think about being in some areas. But he had this area of weakness where he wasn't consistent. That's the problem. The problem was his dealings with women. Time after time in these narratives, we've seen hints of the trouble that's to come because this is the area of his life that he had not submitted to God's will. Everything else seems to be in pretty good shape, but this area was not submitted. And now things will unravel for David fairly quickly. When there's one area in our lives that is not submitted to God's will, it's like a tumor. And we would like to think that that tumor can be isolated and never spread. But unfortunately, when it comes to health care, sometimes it does spread and go into other areas. When it comes to sin, that tumor may stay dormant for a long time. In David's case, he's probably almost 50 years old by the time this chapter opens, if not a little over 50. And that sin seems to have been isolated. He seems to have it all under control. Maybe he's not real happy when he goes home at night, but it seems to have it mostly under control because he's, he's ruling well, he's fighting well, he's administrating well. But we can't keep that under control indefinitely. And now it's going to spread, and it's going to cause him a tremendous amount of problems. This story is so familiar, it's not going to take long to tell the story itself. But there are some details along the way that will significantly help us to learn the lesson from this passage that we need to learn. And that's my, that's my purpose tonight, to help us learn the lesson from the passage. God the Holy Spirit did not record these things strictly to embarrass David or to satisfy our curiosity. He recorded them so that we might learn and be challenged not to make the same mistake. Verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. 
If you recall from last week's lesson, the, the Israelites had been fighting at Ammon. The battle was essentially won, and the troops had withdrawn for the winter season. Ammon is not that far from Jerusalem. I was told recently that on a very, very clear night, you can stand up on the Mount of Olives, and because of the desert air, at night you can actually see the lights of Amman, Jordan, which is ancient Rabbah. So it's, it's not all that far from where David was. The idea here is that David is not in the geographical will of God. We would wonder about that if it were not for one word in this text. It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. You see, it's not that far. He could have been in Jerusalem for other reasons. Maybe there were legitimate reasons. That David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. You see, it's that phrase that leads all Old Testament expositors, all Old Testament expositors, to realize that David should have been with Joab and the army besieging Rabbah in Ammon. Ancient military campaigns were restricted by seasonal variations in the weather. It's not so anymore. We'll fight in all kinds of weather, but not in, in ancient warfare. Springtime marked the end of the rainy season, in the Middle East anyway, and theoretically, this was a better time to go to battle because the roads would dry out, there would be ample vegetation for the horses and for the pack animals and, and any kind of grazing cattle that would come along with you. So in the ancient world, it was fairly common to lay low in the wintertime, at least in the Middle East. It was common to lay low in the middle time and then start the fighting again up in the spring. But David stayed home. The text gives us no reason, no excuse. This was the time when kings go to war. But David stayed home. Now, there's another slide I want to show you tonight, and I don't know how well you can see it in the back. But this is the place that archaeologists believe that David had his palace at the time of the episode in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The thing about photographs is you can't get depth perception very well. This is a terraced area. And although it's difficult to see unless you're really up close, the episode that we're about to talk about from here to the next few verses takes place probably right down in about here. If you're standing there, it doesn't look so much like that on this photograph, and later on I'll put it back up when we finish the class tonight, and if you want to come up and look a little more carefully, it's not that far from where David would be to where Bathsheba would have been bathing. Not that far at all. Certainly, unless you were nearly blind, you would be able to stand out on a terrace and see fairly clearly someone that was bathing down in this area. In verse 2, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed, and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about her, about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. 
the phrase that's translated very beautiful in verse 2 is reserved in the scripture for people of striking physical appearance. Rebecca, for example, Queen Vashti, Esther. This is the terminology that we use of those three ladies. Me'od Tov. In the creation narrative, when God finished creating everything, including man, it was Tov Me'od. It was exceedingly good. Same words, just different order. Me'od Tov. Extremely attractive person. It's always been a source of speculation as to why Bathsheba is bathing in the open as she was. Again, once again, as you can see from this, if the woman was bathing right into here on top of a roof and there were terraced homes above her, you could see why people would wonder, what was she thinking? Bathing in that situation. Perhaps we know it's the spring. Perhaps the heat of the day drove her outside. But should she have known that people might have seen her from the dwellings above? Perhaps. And if you're thinking about modesty versus um, different cultures or lack of modesty, this was a culture that would have had extreme modesty. But the text is not concerned so much with Bathsheba's role here. That's not the human author of the Holy Spirit's point. It's not Bathsheba's motivation or what Bathsheba's doing. The text is concerned with David's viewpoint. So we may never have the answer. This would be pure speculation as to Bathsheba's culpability, but that's not the point. The point is David's culpability. This is about David. And let's just let's say even if Bathsheba was attempting to tempt David, even if we were to grant that, and I'm not necessarily granting it, but even if we were, David, as the king, had the responsibility to turn and go back in that house as quick as he could. Instead of taking that second look. It's the second look that gets you. And that's what happened to David. Think about Joseph. He ran away. Sometimes we need to run away. And this is not the only sin that we need to be considering tonight. There are certain situations we can get, in, get ourselves into, and we look and see this situation. It's not a good one. I need to get the heck out of here, and I need to get the heck out of here right now. And we tell that to our teenagers and our college students, don't we? And then we forget about it ourselves. And we run into the same situation, different sin perhaps, but a situation where we know we ought not to be in that situation, or we know we ought not to be involved in this conversation. Somebody pulls us aside, look, i got something i got to tell you. Well, we're curious, we want to know. But as soon as, as soon as that conversation starts, it ought to go through my mind. Is, is this going to pollute me to hear this? Is this going to be an open grave? All these things that I'm about to hear. This is about David. Even if he was tempted, he had the responsibility to turn and walk away. He sends and inquires about the woman. It's interesting how it's related. This is not a statement. It's a question. Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam? The, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. Been with him for years. He's a trusted servant. And most likely, a good friend. Most Old Testament commentators believe that he was a Yahweh worshiper, that he was saved himself. David probably knew who the woman was already. 
there's a very good likelihood that he had met her before. This is not that big of a place. In the time of Jesus, Jerusalem had max 40,000 people. This is 1,000 years before Jesus. This is a small town, relatively speaking. So that's why I think the, the answer comes back in a form of a question. Well, isn't that Uriah the Hittite's wife? I love the way it's put. This is somebody's daughter, somebody's granddaughter, and somebody's wife. And that's how it should be observed. And that's what this text is telling me. What kind of subtleties here? So many warnings for David. There's not just a name given. This is somebody's daughter, David. And this is one of your best friend's wife, David. This is your cue, David. This is when you turn and go back in the house, David. This is not when you take that second look, David. But if this is the, the area that he had had weakness with and had never dealt with it, then now the tumor starts to spread. The encapsulation is gone. The cells are out there. And it's going to infect everything. His whole life. The verbiage here is interesting. Similar to what happens in Genesis chapter 3 when the woman saw that the fruit was good and so she took it and she ate it and she gave it. Remember that rapid succession of verbs in Genesis chapter 3? Well, it's the same idea here. David sent messengers and took her. Here we find David abusing his leadership. One more time, even if, and I'm saying it's a big, big if, even if Bathsheba was, and again, it's a big if, if she was being flirtatious, David had responsibility. We talked about that last week. If he's going to be great, with greatness comes responsibility, and you've got to exercise that responsibility well. He had the responsibility to say no. But he doesn't do that. He uses his leadership and takes her. This is a phrase that has been used in the past, or rather, in Hebrew Bible, to indicate that David might have forced himself on her. I doubt that. But I do believe that he may have forced the relationship in this way. He's the king. The king sends for you. You turn the king down. It's, it's different now. It's different today. We would hope that the president of the United States send for you and tell him, go take a walk. You know, whatever presidents do. You ought to be able to do that. Now, maybe I'm being naive, you know, but you ought to be able to do that. But with the king, it's a little different. So I want you to see there's a, there's a subtlety here. David is abusing his leadership. In the past chapter, he didn't abuse his leadership. In chapter 10, he exercised leadership beautifully. In chapter 9, he exercised leadership beautifully. He showed kindness, chesed, to Mephibosheth. Now this is anything but kindness. If he really loved her, he'd have left her alone. If he loved her husband, he would have left her alone. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from uncleanness, she returned to her house. This is the wife of a trusted servant that David violated. It's a woman that he probably already knew. And while it's not introduced here, I'm going to introduce it. I'm going to introduce you to it because it's going to come up big time later in the text. This is the granddaughter of one of his closest advisors, a man named Ahithophel. And later on in this text, we're going to wonder why Ahithophel turns on him when Absalom comes back for this revolution. This is the reason why. Ahithophel doesn't particularly like the idea that David took his granddaughter. Thankfully, 
The text relates the episode in the briefest possible way. I'm grateful for that. We don't need any more information than what we have here. We get the point. The phrase, and when she had purified herself from uncleanness, does deserve a little bit of an explanation. So follow me carefully with this. This is a circumstantial clause, signifying something that has already happened. I don't get into this a lot in the text unless it really matters to help us to understand really what happens here, what's going on here. This circumstantial clause signifies something that's already happened. The English translation here is a bit awkward. Perhaps it would be better to translate it here and having already purified herself. The uncleanness that's referred to in verse 4 may not be referring to the sexual act, although that was a possibility under Levitical law, Mosaic law. But because of the circumstantial clause, it's probably referring to something that had taken place before David took her. In other words, her monthly uncleanness, if you want to put it in the way the Jews would have put it, or her her menstrual cycle. The bath that she was originally taking on the roof then may have been a ceremonial bath to cleanse her from the ritual uncleanness of her cycle. Now, why would I even bring this up? I wouldn't have unless it really mattered. In other words, she was not already pregnant when this happened. And David knows this. The Bible is very frank about these things. Sometimes it just has to tell us about physiology so that we'll know exactly what's going on. The whole point of me telling you about this circumstantial clause is there's no doubt that the child is David's. And since he knows that, he's going to dig a really deep hole for himself. He's already dug a hole. But for David, this is a hole he's dug before, isn't it? He's got several wives already. He's already violated that aspect of God's command, the one man, one woman thing. And he's gotten away with it. He knows that tumor's there. Messed with it a lot. It doesn't, doesn't seem to be growing. It seems he can do whatever he wants to. Smoke, drink all he wants to. The lungs don't seem to get cancer. Well, this time, though, that little detail, that circumstantial clause is letting us know there's a little something's happened here that hadn't happened to him before. Got pregnant. The wife of one of his best friends, the granddaughter of one of his closest advisors. He must have surely been embarrassed by what had happened. It's bad enough that he committed adultery, but now he's going to get caught. And everyone's going to know just what a raunchy guy King David had been. And even though David might have wanted to deny it, nobody wants to be thought of that way. Nobody wants to be thought of as someone that would have taken their best friend's wife. Certainly not David. So she's pregnant and he's humiliated because he's betrayed one of his best friends in the process. The chickens have now come home to roost. They always do. That's one of the points of this passage. They always do. The rest of the narrative is pretty simple, really. David's plan about what to do about this. It's not going to work, as you already know. But his plan's pretty simple. Get Uriah home. His men are in the field. They get Uriah home and introduce, euphemistically introduce the possibility 
that Uriah might be the father. No DNA testing back then. David was a redhead when he was younger. I doubt he was a redhead when he was 50. Maybe he was. So you're not going to be able to look at the kid probably and say, well, that, that's got to be David's kid. That can't be Uriah's kid. I just don't think they knew enough about genetics back then to think that way, at least not till the child was over. So David probably thought, okay, this is the easiest thing I could do. And I imagine he's telling himself while he's figuring this plan out, wow, that's close. I'm never going to do this again. Well, I tell you what, I learned my lesson. I'm never going to do it again. Let me just get Uriah home and get this thing done and and I can sleep easy and I'll go back home to my four or five wives and just keep just stay there. Well, doesn't happen. In verse six. Then David said to Joab, Joab is in Ammon, in Rabah, fighting the Ammonites. Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and all the people in the state of the war. He, this is cute, isn't it? Hey, how's everything going up there? You got all the supplies you need? How's my, how's my little nephew, Joab? He doing a good job up there? Wee, oh, that's good. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house. Wash your feet. Get cleaned up. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Again, you remember where his house was. That's Uriah's house. It's not just Bathsheba's. That's where he went down to. didn't take him long to get there or to not get there, as it turns out. He didn't go down to his house. And when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why don't you go down to your house? You're out of your mind. I'm giving you this leave. Go see your wife. Have a date. Take her out to dinner. Do something, David. And Uriah said to David, the, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. This man's got some integrity. This is the king he's talking to. He's been ordered to go take his wife out to dinner, and he said, I'm not doing it. Now, as long as all my friends are in the field, now there's an implication here. You almost have to read between the lines to get it, and I'm very careful about reading between the lines biblically. So this is just an implication that Uriah is actually dissing David a little bit here. You might stay home, sir, but I'm not going to do that. If my men are in the field, I'm not going to go have a date with my wife. Uriah is a man of integrity. The whole time, don't you see, this is a man that didn't have this coming to him at all. We talk about David's great sin with Bathsheba, and it was. But David's sin with Bathsheba wasn't really that much different from the other sins that he had committed. That was his area. Now, no excuse for it, but that was his area. This time he crosses the line and murders one of his best friends. The text ought to, I mean, if we're going to talk about this, the title ought to be David's great sin with Uriah but also with Bathsheba. I know somebody's going to write me an email saying I'm condoning adultery. I am not. Please, I'll just send it back like I never got it. That's, that's insulting to me, so please don't do that. They're both horrible sins. Both, I already said, punishable by death under the Mosaic Law. Don't forget that because it's going to come up next week. But David did was punishable by death two different ways. The adultery and what's going to happen now. So in verse 12, David said to Uriah, Stay here today, also and tomorrow, and I'll let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then in verse 13, 
David's going to go to plan B, get him drunk. You see, if he can just get him to get on the booze a little bit, maybe this integrity that Uriah's got, this high and mighty integrity, maybe we can soften that just a little bit. And after all, it's very legitimate to have a date with your wife, and so let's just get him drunk. What a friend David is to him. And he did make him drunk in verse 13. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but did not go down to his house. Plan B doesn't work. As we're reading this, as we know the story, we're almost thinking, go home, Uriah. Just, just go home. But here, you, this is one of these ironies of the Bible. You've got a man who used to have, for the most part of his life, he does have great integrity, but right now he doesn't. So David's integrity is at a low point. Uriah's integrity is at a high point. The irony is, is that Uriah's integrity is going to get him killed. For Uriah, in eternal terms, Uriah's going to be probably eternally blessed for this. He did the right thing, and he suffers consequences that we think look pretty bad. But in the big scheme of things, in, that, in God's tapestry, this is woven through, and Uriah will ultimately be blessed. Uriah's not losing anything by maintaining his integrity. We never lose by maintaining our integrity. We never lose by doing the right thing. You, you may get whooped. You may lose some of your money. You may, there's, there's certain things that may look like a loss. But ultimately, when all said and done, we never lose by doing the right thing. So plan A was to bring him home from the front, see if he'll have a date with his wife. Plan B, since he won't do that, get him drunk. Plan C is not very good. That's to have him killed. In verse 14, Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the ancient world, this, was probably, this wouldn't have been in an envelope, of course, but it would have been in the form of a scroll. And that scroll would have been wound up tightly, and there would have been some sort of seal placed on the scroll in wax, probably with a signet ring of the king or some symbol that the king had written it. It was Uriah's own death sentence that he's going to carry, which is not the first, probably, nor the last time in history that that's happened where somebody actually handed his own orders of execution to someone. Had Uriah opened that letter up, then he would have been executed for violating the king's confidentiality. He had, we know by the time that we read this verse that there's really nothing Uriah could do. But Uriah, once again, maintains his integrity right to the end. He delivers his own letter of execution. It came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he had written in the letter, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. Is there anybody that doubts that David is ordering the execution of Uriah the Hittite? He just wants to make it look like it just happened in reality. David is ordering his death. Now somebody says, well, there's a possibility that he could have got it. Well, this is David's intention. He says it right here in the text. So we're not left to wonder, so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch in the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. In verses 19 through 25, we see 
a rendering of how Joab notified David that the deed had been done. Joab's involvement here is, is an interesting one. And people are speculating just how guilty was Joab. But I've got to stress to you, chapter 11 is not about Bathsheba and any possible culpability she would have had, whether she did or not. So there's no, no point in really arguing about it. It's not about her. The chapter is also not about Joab. So we could argue back and forth. Did Joab do the right thing? And, and I know people have. People said, well, wait a minute. Joab knew that this guy was one of the leading men. He could have at least sent a note back to David. Are you sure? Am I getting this order right? We can talk about that. We can speculate about that. But that's all it's going to be. Because this chapter is not about Joab. It's not about Bathsheba. It's about one person. And that's David. You're welcome to your own opinion on just how guilty Joab was here. This chapter doesn't tell you. In verse 26, we have Bathsheba's reaction to the death of her husband. I think it's interesting the way that the, the text refers to her. She's referred to Bathsheba when David inquires about her. Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But here, Uriah is the one that's being lied. When the wife of Uriah the Hittite, or when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Her name's not mentioned. Surely that's purposeful. I'm quite certain that Bathsheba felt pretty bad about this. Sin is seldom isolated. We would like to think that our sins are. But sin is seldom isolated. It tends to branch out and affect other people. The final verse of the chapter is transitional and it's ominous. This is the first time in this chapter that the Lord's been mentioned. But while the Lord hasn't been mentioned, he hasn't been on vacation either. He's fully aware of every detail here. Many, many more than what had been related in the short chapter that we studied tonight. The Lord has been fully aware of everything that's happened. And David is not going to get away with this. When the time of the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. This is the ominous sentence, and this is the last sentence we'll consider tonight. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the ominous part. It's almost comical to me when people say that God's graciousness or the idea that a sin can be confessed and forgiven means that someone got away with something. Someone get away with it. Confess it, that means you got away with it. If you believe that, You've never read the next few chapters. You stopped at chapter 11. David is not going to get away with anything. In fact, we're going to find out he really didn't get away with those multiple marriages that he already had in his dealings with women. That's all part of this package that's come home to roost. This verse sounds the alarm that David will pay dearly to this evil adultery, and murder. The 
point of this text is that we should all be careful. Let me stress that one more time. We should all be careful when it comes to consistency in the spiritual life. The point of this chapter is not for us to walk out here and say, well, that's, those are not my two areas. I, I would never even think about those two things. You do that, you miss the point altogether. You may as well stay at home because you already knew the story. The point of the chapter is that we must have consistency across the board in our spiritual life. Because that one area that we refuse to deal with will end up coming back and kicking us in the hind end. Just like it did with David. We need consistency across the board. So it's up to each one of us to examine our own life. It's not up to me to examine your life. It's up to you to examine your life. Before God, who knows all your thoughts, everything that you've done, and loves you anyway. Sent his son to die for you anyway. Knowing what you would do even after salvation. It's up to us to go to him. And examine our own lives. Every area of our lives. The whole spectrum. Not just the things that are on the end of the spectrum that you think are particularly horrible. All sin is offensive to God. And we need to make sure that every area of our lives, every aspect of our lives, has been.